Hello, I'm Ken Bruce. I appeared as a guest on My Time Capsule, and after that I had to give up a job I'd had for 46 years. <sighs> anyway, they want me to tell you that they've started a thing called Acast Plus, where for a small monthly fee you can get the podcast ad-free. For me, I think the ad's are the best thing in it. That Fenton Stevens, he does drone on a bit. Anyway, whatever you like, do something and have a go at it. ACAS Plus, my time capsule. Thanks, Ken. Charming. Anyway, to get my time capsule ad-free and for a bonus my time capsule, the debrief episode every week, subscribe to ACAS Plus. Details in the description of this episode. Thanks. Bloody Ken Bruce, what a cheek. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So, take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello, and welcome to My Time Capsule. I'm Mike Fenton-Stevens, and this is the podcast where I ask various guests to tell me the five things from their life that they would like to preserve in a time capsule. They choose four things that they cherish and would like to keep safe, but they also pick one thing that they rather regret, something they'd like to bury in the ground and never think of again. My guest in this episode is the actor Mike Grady, famous for playing Ken Mills in John Sullivan's comedy Citizen Smith with Robert Lindsay and Barry Wilkinson in 161 episodes of The Last of the Summer Wine. Mike trained at the Bristol Old Vic Theatre School and quickly established himself in a career that has spanned more than 50 years. He was in the films The Return of the Pink Panther and The Prisoner of Zender with Peter Sellers, The Pirates of Penzance with Kevin Kline and Angela Lansbury, and Sherlock Holmes' A Game of Shadows with Robert Downey Jr. and Jude Law, amongst many others. He's performed at the Royal Shakespeare Company, the Royal Court and the National Theatre, as well as in pantomime, and his huge television credits include Doctor in the House in 1969, right through to Shakespeare and Hathaway, with Endeavour, Vanity Fair, Midsummer Murders, Casualty, Doctors, the voice of Sir Robert Norrenby in 20 episodes and two films from Thomas and Friends, Holby City, Skins, As Time Goes By with Judy Dench, Collins Sandwich with Mel Smith, Not With a Bang and Minder. He was even in Emmerdale for two episodes in 1973, so Mike could have spent his career in that one programme. Or he could have continued to play Les Grimes in Coronation Street, which he appeared in in 1975. Instead, he has had this wide-ranging and fascinating career, which hopefully we'll hear about now, along with his amazing life, as Mike Grady tells us the five things from them that he'd like to put in his very own time capsule. 
I hope you enjoy it. If I were to pick one, I would pick the straw boater that my dad used to wear whenever he went on stage. And he was a solicitor, my dad, but he always, when he went on stage, wore a Maurice Chevalier boater. Oh, oh. I know. Oh. Stylish. I mean, really? But, you know, if I had that thing, it's my dad. It reminds me of everything about him. Yeah, I love those things. I mean, the thing is, you think of a thing like that, and of course it does expand then, and then you've got the location mm-hmm. and the time and the period and what else was happening in the world, and the whole thing is kind of a, a picture. You know? And that's what tends to happen. You start off with something small, and it goes to places, and you never know where it's going to go. I've really enjoyed doing it. Yeah, I'll bet you have. How are we doing? Are we recording yet? Or we... We're recording, but, uh, you know... I'm happy just chatting like this, really. I know. I've got a list. I did make a small list. You've made a list. Lovely. Oh, yeah, of course. I mean, I take these things very seriously. And they, they were the five that came up. OK. Out of the jigsaw puzzle that was presented to me. I went, OK, that, 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 and that. Bosh, bosh, bosh. Brilliant. And some of them some of them go a little dark and some of them don't. We may go off into all kinds of areas. We shall see. Um, so this is a... OK, I, I think it's a house... And this is um, a house called Wiggled Lodge. Wiggled Lodge. Yeah. It's in Gloucestershire. It's on uh, the Stowe Road. When I was little, we were itinerant farm labourers, my stepfather and my mother. They would get a job on a farm. And with that would come a tied cottage. Ah, There was a low rent. But uh, for the length of the job, you would have somewhere to live. And this was one on the Stow Road. And when the job was done, when the harvesting was in or the plowing was done, then you'd be fired, basically, and out of your home, moved to the next one. So that was it. So, mm. no. But Wiggle Lodge is a curiosity. It's like a loaf on the side of the... It's a lovely old place, built in the 1800s. These are all lovely cottages. Mm. Um, I think it had running water. <laughs> and it was a place I just remember very fondly and with some trepidation because on a Friday and a Saturday night, my stepfather would put on his demop suit. Although they were Irish, they'd, been, they'd come over here, they'd been in the war, they fought on this side. And he would go to the pub, put his flat cap on, go to the pub. Mm. And those evenings with just my mum and myself, she would get a fag on and she would do the ironing. And the Saturday night would be Saturday night theatre on the radio. And so it was cosy. It was a fire blazing. She was ironing. So I'll be playing on the linoleum, <laughs> of which I am a master. <laughs> and, uh, and, and it was a cosy sort of time that I recall with great affection. She could quite happily interact with me and listen to the radio with a cigarette on and comment on the play. Uh. And you'd hear her go, oh, yeah, she's going to murder you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> They're so annoying, aren't they, with their multitasking? <laughs> 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 she was, you know, other day she was right about the play, but she was convinced there was always a murder in every play. It could have been Chekhov. It wouldn't have mattered. There would have been a murder. Uh, <laughs> and those Saturday night plays were, were things that my first taste of, of of drama, and I can still remember. I must have been then five, six years old. Right. I remember them vividly. And um, they created that visual thing in your head. So I remembered mm. the place and the fire and the rest of it. The other thing about Wiggled Lodges, because they both worked, a parent would drop me home from the school and I'd be mm. by myself. Nobody locked doors. So I'd stand on the boot scraper outside and reach up and undo the latch and go in. And it was still probably just about daylight. I've driven past it a few times and on my way through Gloucestershire yeah. and um, stop and photograph it. I've never knocked on the door. What was that? I want to knock on the door. 
and just talk to the people there, but I never have. So I kind of want to preserve the myth in my head mm -hmm. because it will be absolutely changed. And also proportions change enormously, don't they, enormously. from being a child? Yeah. You, you probably remember that as being quite a large house. Yes, I probably did. I don't think I mm. thought in those terms. But when I saw it, I think it was kind of slightly bigger than I remembered it. Oh, right. Bizarrely. But it was, a, it was on its own by a little cot surrounded by what was then cornfields, where I saw my first fox torn to shreds, which was a life changer. Oh. Um, the hounds would tear through across the gardens. And sometimes they'd get into the house. If the door was open, they'd come through the house. And if there was anything on the table, they'd have it. The bread was off the table. They'd go out the other door, you know. Good Lord. It was quite scary. And then they were in the cornfield just outside the house, literally outside. And they tore this thing to It was very quick, I have to say. Mm. And those people in the red coat were shouting at my mother, telling her to get the child inside, you know, um, and all <laughs> okay. of that. You know, it was a bit late. So it was a very rural upbringing then. Your father's a farm labourer. You were always in the countryside. Until about nine years old, yeah. Right. And also it's quite a, it's a cruel system, isn't it, that if you're working for someone, then you have this house. For the moment you're not needed anymore, out you go. You know the rules. Mm -hmm. These were immigrants. You come to this country came over in the 20s and 30s, I guess. I don't know their story. It wasn't a nice marriage. I've got to say it wasn't a comfortable thing, and it didn't last. But they did their best, you know. And when you're a kid, you don't know. No. You just haven't got a language for what's going on. And there was a lot of damage done, which 60 years later I was having to deal with. You don't know that when you're a kid. You just do the next thing, and then you go and play cowboys and Indians. And Did you have siblings? No. So you playing cowboys and Indians? I did both. I did have schools. So there were people at schools and playgrounds. Yeah. But again, living in the countryside, they don't come round to your house because you're not just around the corner. No, we never had, we never put down roots anywhere. No. And I was always the new kid at the village, village the next village we were at. As a result of which, I have zero education entirely. <laughs> it's all happened in adulthood. You've got to start your education by leaving school. That's what you do. Right. So I didn't have any education at all, O-levels, A-levels, all of that stuff. The damage was, was enormous, and I couldn't handle things like that. And um, when we'd moved into the city, then I could go to a, a Catholic school. If you're living in the country, the local church knows the story. They know that you work Sundays. Mm. The cows need milk, mm -hmm. you know, all of that. So you don't go to mass. Whereas in the city, I was at a Catholic school, and it was like full on, you know. And there was a crucifix in every room. So everywhere you went, there was this leading person Yes, in every room. You know, and, uh, the priests were nice. The priests were nice people. They were, they were very kind. Mm. But there was something about the oppression of it. And, uh, and I, I bought into it as much as I could. But that was my memory. That reminds me of my mum. Listening to the Saturday evening play, yeah. do you think then that that sparked anything in you at that age? Or, yeah. Yeah? Radio was the big deal in those days. You go into school, nobody was talking about television. They were talking about journey into space. Yeah, yeah. And I eventually, bizarrely, from there, going to a... I mean, it, was not, it wasn't a big space of time. I was like six, seven years old. And then at 20, 21 or so, I'm in the West End. How do you plot that? You couldn't plan it. No. Uh, but I was at drama school with a great bunch of people. I mean, a ball. One of them was um, a woman called Susanna Falls, who was Jet Morgan's daughter. I don't know journey into space, but... Anybody under 50 can Google it. I don't care. <laughs> it was like a major, major thing. It was big as Star Trek yeah. by comparison. Was that Bristol Old Vic did you go to? Yeah, I did. Oh, brilliant. 
I still see some of the people that I was at drama school with. Do you? I mean, I was in a very odd year. I, I was in a weird year because the year I was in, Vietnam was happening. And we had Americans who were dodging the draft. They either went to Canada or they could come here. These guys were trained killers. <laughs> so if we needed a stage fight doing, we go, Lance, go, Lance, what do you want, kid? And said, <laughs> I'm doing a sword fight. We say, you don't need a sword. You need a stick. This is what you do. <laughs> I've killed hundreds of people this way. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my so God. Great. But very useful to have on a Friday night in the middle of Bristol. Yeah, very useful. They were great. They were great. I had the best time. And, of course, it was a period, though. Remember that, of course. It's a period when my local council gave me a grant mm-hmm. to go to drama school. Yeah. They paid my rent. <laughs> they gave me some money to live on. They paid my school fees. I have repaid them in taxes many times over. Yes. It was a really good investment. And, of course, that is the argument for paying for students to go and study. A great investment. Mm-hmm. I sat with my mum at Sir Thomas Rich's school in the middle of Gloucester, which is a grammar school, and before a committee. And they'd been talks. I was working in community theatre, you know, I was doing stuff when I was 16, 17. I was doing plays and poetry, I was writing, I was doing, you know, I was kind of, you know, in there. And um, they said, we have wonderful reports, you know, and we're going to help you, you know. They said, when you hear from the drama school, let us know and we'll process the grant. Well, I didn't hear. <laughs> I didn't hear anything from this drama school. So on the first day of term, I hitchhiked from Gloucester down to Bristol and sat under a tree at about 7.30 in the morning and watched all the students arriving. And I wasn't, I'd heard nothing. I, <laughs> I didn't know what to do. I mean, I didn't, I just didn't know why I was there. But I, I sat there and I watched them. And then when all the doors closed and everybody was in, I went and knocked on the door. Uh, I rang the bell, actually. And the <laughs> vice principal came, a man called Adrian Cairns, immensely tall with a dome fair, lovely man. And he looked out, he remembered me from the hundreds of people they'd seen. He remembered me. He says, Mike, it's Mike, isn't it? And I said, I said, yes. He said, you didn't get in? <laughs> I said, uh, well, I didn't get a letter. I said, nobody told me I hadn't got in. I said, I've just come down. Just have a look. <laughs> and I've got a grant waiting. Yeah, I've got a grant waiting. He said, he said, he said <laughs> come in. <laughs> oh, brilliant. And he sat me in the office of the principal. And I could hear him laughing with the secretary outside. She said, he's done what? And he just turned up. Brilliant. And I was like this spotty, oiky, sweaty kid, you know, and I was feeling like shit by this mm. time. I mean, I was like, what am I doing? You know, I don't, I mean, really, I had nothing. I had nothing. This was the gift of desperation, I think, you know, and I was like, okay, I'm here. I'll just... And in comes Nat Brenner. Nat Brenner was the principal. He was an astonishing figure. He'd been a prisoner of war. He was a rabid socialist and a decent man. And he stood in the doorway looking at me with this sea of grey hair, looking down, his glasses on his head. He said, what are you doing here, boy? <laughs> and I, I did the same thing. I said, well, the thing is, uh, I came from a mission. I went, you know, uh, I went home. I, they, they got a me and everything else. I've been in the committee and my mum said this thing. Uh, and, I, and I hitchhiked him that. And uh, he just looked at me. His mouth was open. And he went and sat behind his desk and he just looked at me like that, like I was <laughs> Martian. He was very decent and he said, I, I, I wouldn't know what to do with you. He said, for a start, we haven't got enough lockers. <laughs> and eventually I, I thought this is just too embarrassing for words. I was just sweating with shame. Mm. And as I was leaving, I said, look, I said, is there any point in me auditioning next year? And he said, no. And then he reached up and took down a piece of 
A4, and I'm just writing your name down. You're in next year. You don't have to audition. Oh, wow. He's the kindest man. He gave me the best time. That is such a fantastic story, Mike. What a wonderful thing. I love it when people make decisions like that. I think when people show that sort of uh, determination, it's fairly obvious that they're going to do it some way. And so you might as well be the person who facilitates it, I think. The cake can be done. It's wonderful. There you are, you see, that lovely house. So your lovely memories of Saturday nights, listening to your mother commenting on the on the radio plays and doing the iron, smoking a fag, sitting in front of the fire, playing on the linoleum. Marvellous. I'm going to put all that into the time capsule as your first thing, Mike. Thank you. Right, let's find out what the second thing is and where it takes us. The train in India. Uh, this was a great thing. A few years ago, I was working for uh, McBurney, Simon McBurney in Complicity, and uh, we were doing Measure for Measure. It was an astonishing production. And it was at the National Theatre, and we did it, and it was good fun, and we loved it. And then it finished, and we all went our several. And they said, I want to tour it, he said, because it was such an expensive piece of work. So we wound up, we did cross Europe, we went to Berlin, we went to various cities, and we wound up in Mumbai. <laughs> we measured the measure. And uh, we had the best time. And one of the highlights was when the next show was in Bangalore, which is a long, long way. And uh, we were all ready to fly over there. And my friend Stephen Crossley said, if we fly, we're, we're only going to see two cities. Why don't we go by train? So a small group of adventurous types got them to arrange a train for us. And the train left at 10 o'clock one night and arrived at 10 o'clock the next night. So you're on a train for 24 hours. And it was just a saga. It was a wonderful, ongoing, rolling saga. They said to us, take a chain with you and chain all your belongings together in your compartment because they will be stolen. <laughs> and before we'd left Mumbai, the guy, it's a businessman, a local fellow, uh, sitting at the thing with his computer. Before the train had even left the station, he said, anybody seen my shoes? <laughs> we all looked around. The shoes were nowhere. And somebody nicked his shoes. <laughs> he legged it. So we were well advised. Yeah. And the train climbed up into the mountains and it gets bitterly cold up there. There are no windows. They're just those bars. And we flopped our beds down and we all snuggled down and held onto the chains of our, of our <laughs> luggage. And we just laughed for 24 hours. Yeah. Uh, there were lovely little moments. Like we had a guy called Jamie who had been a teacher and a little boy and his dad got on. Next time, Jamie's sitting with him. He's helping with his homework. It was the most charming thing. And then we'd get off at very, it was stopped everywhere, stopped at all these stations. And we were quite exotic. We looked different, you know, in yes. local villages. You could talk about cricket or Shakespeare and you were right in there. They could talk about all of that. And the train would start very slowly. So you could walk along beside it and jump on and off. Oh, brilliant. So we did all of those trips. And a man would come along with tea, chai, chai, <laughs> chai, up and down the train. We were drinking chai. And then he'd come along with big tureen of various types of curry. All cooked on board, aren't they, as well, those things? They have a, I've seen programmes about trains in India, and they have these tiny little kitchens, and they cook vast amounts of curry. Oh, yeah. They're a whole industry in themselves. They're mm-hmm. absolutely lovely. And we just were observing. And, and these things, you cross a bridge and look down into the river, and they're going very slowly. And walking along the middle of the river would be a line of cow, those longhorn cows mm-hmm. with a little boy sitting on the rear cow with a stick. Just like out of an epic film, you go, wow, I'm actually seeing this. And the sun sets and the sun rises and the terrain. 
and the forest and the whole thing. And it was like, it was the best decision ever mm. to take that journey and take a little longer to get to Bangalore, which is a, was a whole other adventure. You know, we got kidnapped by tuk-tuk drivers every 10 minutes. You'd say, could you take us to the cricket bat shop? And they'd go, <laughs> yeah. And they'd take you miles away and drop you in because they'd been paid by a store to take customers to the store. But it was just that whole thing. And then you get back to England. And then people say, what were you doing? So we're doing measure for measure. Did the Indians understand it? And you go, it's a play about a corrupt official who rapes a nun. Yep, I think they were on that one. They got it big time. And great audiences. And they were also generous hosts too. And I met Shashi Kapoor. Oh, my word. We all went. And he was wonderful. He'd been widowed about a year before, I think. He was immensely generous and sweet man. And um, I took him aside and I said, uh, my brother-in-law, my brother-in-law was an actor, Christopher Cazenove, no longer with us, sadly. But I said, I know mm. Chris would have been horrified if I didn't send his love to you, say how much, you know, he loved working with one. They did a film together. And he burst out laughing and he called his daughter over and he said, Mike knows Christopher Cazenove. And they both cackled like anything. <laughs> They'd been in this film, and he said, Christopher was a very naughty boy. <laughs> At Christopher's funeral, Simon Williams got up. It was a massive funeral, and everybody had been saying what a wonderful actor Christopher was, which he was, and very beautiful he was, which he was. Simon got up and got into the pub and looked at the coffin and said, wasn't that good looking? <laughs> He's a devil of a man. Chris was a Chris. He had uh, Alfa Romeos. He loved his cars. He used to buy them secretly because and Harrod, his wife, she discovered he had seven. <laughs> he'd stash them at various garages around the country and not tell them. She said, "Why couldn't it be women?" <laughs> My favourite story about him. He remember the Alibi Club in the King's Road, and they they said to him one night, "Really, Chris, you shouldn't drive." I'm fine. I'm absolutely fine. I promise you, I'm absolutely fine. And uh, he got into his sports car and off he went down the King's Road. And about a Parsons Green, he was pulled over by the police and he uh, wound the window down. And he said, I've no idea why you've stopped me, officer. I have <laughs> certainly not been exceeding the speed limit. And the policeman said, on the contrary, sir, we have followed you for the last 34 minutes. You've not gone above 10 miles an hour. <laughs> yep, that's a bit of a giveaway. Yep. <laughs> oh, dear. Yeah. Oh, well, we can laugh now, but thank goodness all that has changed. Oh, yeah. But there we are. How, how brilliant. It is interesting you say that it is the best decision you've ever made to take that train journey because it's often the case, isn't it, that when you decide rather than do the the straightforward, easy thing, like get on a plane wow. and you decide to go a different way, you'll have an adventure. I was in Australia, touring Australia, and we had to go from Sydney to Melbourne. And right in the middle is Canberra. They couldn't decide which was to be the capital city, Sydney or Melbourne. So they decided to build a capital city equidistant from the two of them, which is why it's where it is, apparently. I did not know. So we decided to drive and go and look at the capital city. Oh, how exciting. We spent a day driving to it, and it was just brilliant, driving through the bush, driving up along the coast. It was just fantastic. But it's a huge country. You can drive forever. We drove right up the Gold Coast, which was fantastic, just marvellous. We worked hard. You know, we did lots and lots of shows as well, but every time we got a gap, 
we would be off on an adventure. And I remember all of them extremely well. Yeah, that's what you do. They lodge, don't they? They lodge. They really do, yeah. Yeah. So it's a great decision, I think, to get on that train. I'm not a natural traveller. I didn't go on gap years and do all that. I never went abroad. I didn't go abroad till I was in my 20s. I got flown somewhere to do a commercial. We were, you know, like, I think rural people don't go very well. I could drive a tractor. (laughs) I couldn't drive a car. No. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's take that journey on the train from Mumbai to Bangalore. Thank you. That's going in. I like that. Yeah, that's number two. So what's number three? Right, this is the point in the podcast where we take a short break in order to allow the podcast provider to play some ads. The podcast with Mike Grady will be back lickety-split. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hey everyone, I've been on the go recently. Phoenix, Kansas City, Chicago. If you're like me and have a home but aren't always at home, you have an Airbnb. Hosting your home or a spare room is a very practical side hustle. If you live in a big game town, you can Airbnb your place for fans to stay in. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash boast. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. Welcome back. Almost as if we'd never gone. So let's rush back to Mike Grady and hear what else he'd like to put in his time capsule. Skydiving? Would that be an interesting thing? Well, to me, a terrifying thing. Yeah. Well, you're quite right. That's what it is, precisely. Okay, that's that one done. Um, So (laughs) I did a series Citizen Smith, and we were a known factor at that stage. Mm. And people asked us to turn up at fates, and so we always did, you know, and did auctions and gagged around. Yeah. And somebody said, we, we're putting together a, a charity uh, parachute jump. Something in me, you know that inner voice, you talk about that voice that says, do this, it'll be good. <laughs> Sometimes you shouldn't listen to it. Yes, I know. You know, but mine <laughs> yeah. said, yeah, go on, Mike, it'll be great. <laughs> so we found ourselves jumping off barrels and learning how to fall off, you know, to land. Pretty basic stuff. And then on the day of the big parachute go, a lot of actors were out there, and there were crowds and crowds of people. Everybody paid a lot of money to charities and things. And we, we turned up, um, my wife and I, uh, and the kids, we, all, we, we turned up at this airport in Kent. And um, the first thing that happened was a funeral cortege arrived. <laughs> Mourning for the lost souls who'd crashed in the plane the week before. 
Oh, my word. So my wife is kind of looking at me about, are you deadly serious? You want to be doing this? Do you feel that little bit, is this a tad irresponsible? Mm. And my friend George Sweeney, who was in the series, and we were the two designated to be the, the jumpers. Nobody else was going near it because they're sane. <laughs> and we spiraled up into two, uh, two and a half thousand feet. And it was very enjoyable. And George, who is Mr. Macho, I mean, he's like solid guy. And he said, Mike, he said, Mike, Mike, I've got to jump first. My ball's twitching. And I said, <laughs> okay, George. I, I went straight in, 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 into, you know, Worcester mode. Yeah, yeah all right, that'll be fine. <laughs> and, and off he went. And there's a big X on the floor, 3,000 feet below us. And he's straight for it. And the chute's open. 1,001, 1,002, 1,003. And he's gone. Say, okay, Mike, out you go. And this particular way of doing it was a little kind of like a Cessna type plane where the door would be, there was a hole in the side, so you'd step out. This is a solo jump as well, Mike. Uh, this was a, a, just a parachute. This was the pre-skydiving days. And, wow. and so, I, and so uh, I got myself out onto the plane. But, of course, getting out of the plane, the wind hit me. I was going into the wind, and it got behind my goggles. I couldn't see where I was going. So I felt my way along the strut under the wing, put my foot on the wheel of the plane, and the other one is dangling out. And it was a moment of truth. You, you kind of find out what you're like. And the guy said, go. And I, my eyes were tight shut anyway because the wind was making me hurt. And I threw myself backwards and shouted, a thousand and one, thousand, two, thousand, three, thousand. And you look up to see the chute and make sure it's open. Mm. And I looked up to see if the chute was open and I was still hanging on to the air. <laughs> but my feet weren't on the wheel. There was, I was like Superman. I was sort of flying around Kent, <laughs> hanging on with my hands welded to the strut <laughs> of this plane. He said, well, you're not coming back. It was like a Hancock sketch. So you're not coming back in. <laughs> so eventually I felt I let go. I know shouting thousand and one. I just fell. And eventually the shoot opened and I flew. I had the most, well, I could see France. I could see, you know, I had the best three and a half minutes that I could imagine hit the ground a bit hard, miles from the cross. <laughs> I mean, fields away. They had to send a truck to find me. <laughs> and I'd landed badly. I'd hurt my ankle. And a guy from the sun was there. And he said, could you do that bit where you were being dragged along by the parachute again, Mike? <laughs> and I went to work the next day limping and uh, lied about it. And they said, oh. And somebody came in and said, hey, look, Mike's in the sun. He's been doing <laughs> jumping out of aeroplanes. <laughs> so then I kind of got, I didn't get a taste for that, but I but I've always remembered it very fondly. It was a very, very exciting experience, mm. despite everything. And uh, we used to go down to Devon and see the hang gliders. And, and I apparently my face would light up when I saw these hang gliders. So Lisa got me for a birthday present, the hang gliding thing. Right. And I found myself with it. This was with an, an instructor underneath a great big kind of stepped off a cliff. We actually ran off the cliff and floated around. And what was lovely, about 20 minutes, we were just cruising around. And right below us was a hawk, which tracked us all the way <laughs> underneath. Wow. I don't know what its relationship was to the thing. The hot air. The hot air. The, the, the thermals. thermals. Following yeah. the thermals. The hawk was doing that. Of course it was. Mm. Well, I, I, you spot it now. I thought we had something going there, you know. So in fact, the reality is you were following it. <laughs> <laughs> we had a ball. Anyway, on the back of this, she then uh, announced that she got me a skydiving thing, which was a whole other bag of beans. So we fetched up a, a not far from the same airport I parachuted in 40 years earlier. 
I was now 73 years old and I'm thinking this is not a very, this is a stupid idea, you know, but you kind of go, all right, I'll, I'm, you know, I'm not going to back out. And her brother was doing it as well. So he said, mm. okay. And um, I paid a little more and I got, you have a choice of having it filmed. And this young woman um, came up in the aeroplane with us. There were quite a few packed into this plane, which I have to say, there was a lot of brown tape holding bits together in this area. <laughs> 12,000 feet. Oh, my word. Up in the air. And it was so thrilling. I cannot even begin to tell you and I did have an instructor behind me and we we're attached yeah and he kept saying you you know you're okay just if you don't want to do this you're still okay. he kept reassuring me and I said no no I'm I'm here now I might as well jump out of an airplane you know mm. while you're there and um <laughs> he said uh, if you can when we get near to the clouds because we're miles above the clouds you will see an aura like a rainbow mm. uh, but I missed it I missed my aura Clouds, bang, suddenly you're in cloud, you know. So how long do you free fall for? I think probably, maybe 30 seconds. It's hard to tell. It's so confusing. I mean, you're just suddenly, one minute you're sitting on the edge of an aeroplane, and the next thing he's taking you with him, mm. and you've got to shout. I mean, it's vital that you make a big noise as you go out. I don't know what would happen if you didn't, but that was the instruction, so I made a big noise. And, and I was just falling and falling, and suddenly there's this big tug, and I'm, just still. It's like we're standing still in the air. Mm. Thrilling. And he said, welcome to my office. <laughs> so do you feel as if you're falling or do you feel like you're flying? Yeah, you bloody do feel as if you're falling. Yeah, you do. You're just falling. And and um, Chelsea, this girl Chelsea, who was photographing her, she would, she'd been waiting for us to leap out of the plane. She was just hanging on with one arm. She had cameras everywhere. She was holding on with one arm. You know, she could have had a cigar on for all that. You know, mm-hmm. she had a couple of drinks. But she was so cool with this stuff. Yeah. I just was in awe of these people. And then she followed us down and she was opening her shooting and shooting up and shooting us from different angles. Amazing. <sighs> just wonderful. Um, I haven't done it since, though. But we would have gone straight back up. It's a bit of a queuing thing going on. But we, um, Nathan and I both loved it. And we would have gone straight back up and done it immediately again. Well, I've got the film of it too. I've got the film of me doing it, so I can prove it to my grandchildren. Yeah, yeah. Over there, <laughs> but um, you know, it was, it was like, yeah, it's a brilliant thing to have done. I'm not sure I'd have the nerve. I mean, I can imagine actually more that I might well do it with someone if I was doing it in tandem. If I felt yes. I had somebody experienced and skilled right behind me who was going to say, "Look, I'm just going to carry you through this," I'd go, oh. "Okay, you know what you're doing. I'll go with you. I'll trust you." But the idea of just jumping out of a Cessna at two and a half thousand feet and relying on your own ability to... You don't have to open the parachute. This is the beauty of it. It's on ah. a, what they call a static line. You've got a, an attachment to the, to the, to the backpack, yeah. which is attached to the plane. Oh, fine. So as you fall, it unravels Yes. as you're falling and it opens itself. Oh, no. Oh, God, no. Are you kidding? I wouldn't have been able to do that. No. That could not happen. No. But I recommend it. We put skydiving in there then. I uh, might, well, you know, maybe when I'm 73, Mike. Got years to go, yeah, mate, years. <laughs> You're a mere baby. <laughs> don't want to leave it too late. I don't want to do it and then say, have I done it? <laughs> That's no good to anyone. <laughs> no money facing reality. So we've got two more things to put in, Mike. The night my son was born, mm. I've two children, Tom and Rihanna. I mean, that in itself would have, would have done, wouldn't it, when your kids are born? Nothing is ever quite the same afterwards. No. In all kinds of ways. But he was born at Bart's. Bart's was the last hospital that wouldn't let dads in to help with the birth. 
Right. They were a wonderful hospital. My wife had trained there as a nurse. Her father was the professor of psychiatry for Barnes. And so there was a huge family connection and they got the best treatment. They were looked after very well. And I had to watch the birth through a hole in the door. <laughs> that was the best I could do. And I wasn't supposed to, but I watched some of it. And they brought Tom out in his little bundle. And I was like, hair down here, Afghan coat. We're talking that in 72, you know, Afghan coat, flares. <laughs> yeah. I was not a pretty sight. Beads. <laughs> I mean, you know. Pull yourself together, Mike. It was like honestly. the 60s had never happened. You know, yeah. <laughs> pull yourself together, Mike. Yeah. Get real. And they gave me this baby and all of this stuff. It's still like goat's turd in the fucking wool of this thing, you know. Yeah. And, and there was that bonding. I just thought, I just fell in love. I thought, my God, this child is, is amazing. Mm-hmm. And I was filming the next day down at Thames TV. So by now it's pretty late. And I got myself home. I don't know how I got home. We had a flat in Kensington at the time that we rented, which was an amazing flat. Wow. And my neighbor downstairs was Peter Wingard. <laughs> really? The hair and the dogs. Yes. Kellen was down there. and It was, it was, it was like a joke, like an equity meeting. Mm. And um, I went back to my flat and I put on, I didn't have many records. We had an old record player and I put on old LP of Roy Orbison. And I just played that for a few hours. And I had a couple of beers or something, but I didn't go to bed. I thought I better not go to bed because I'll just oversleep and then I won't get to work. Mm. So at some ungodly hour, then I, I roused myself and uh, was ready to go. And I went to the train and I got to Teddington Station. And there was, bear in mind that I had just held my son in my arms. There was a dead body on the station forecourt. No. The guy had just died. Oh, God. And I was seeing birth and death in that few hours. Mm. I don't know what to make of it. I wanted to make a narrative out of it. I wanted to make an event of it or to find some sense in it. But it was... It was a gift. That's for sure. It was a gift. And I went off filming. I don't think I was very good. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, uh, Bob Lindsay, and when we were doing uh, Smith, he said, I've had a call from a a mate. He said, they want me to go and do an appearance, a concert, a rock concert. He said, you and me can do it, couldn't we? I said, what what can we do? (laughs) Well, you know, because John Sullivan had written the odd song every now and then that he had to perform. So he said, we could do that. I used to put the chords to these songs. All three of my chords went into these songs. <laughs> he said, we could do that. We could, we could write something. We'd be all right. Yeah. Um, we fetched up in a giant marquee on Tooting Common. The headlining act was The Police. Oh, my God. And they were like the hottest thing on the planet at that moment. There were a couple of bands back in a mind and a comic who happened to be Tommy Cooper. Uh, who we adore. Mm. It was a not a happy day for Tom. I think 8,000 people crammed into this tent to see them. Tommy comes on, he does the whole thing, and he goes, oh, kind of road to work. You know, he does his whole stick. I'm not even going to attempt it. And they booed him, and he did the thing of going through the garden, not like that, like that, you know. And he came off, and he went, ah, a load of bastards. <laughs> what a load of bastards. Yeah. And then the people organising the concert took him out onto the main road to get him a cab home. And the cabbie said, I'm going the other way, mate. And he wouldn't take it. No. The great Tommy Cooper. weird, you know, because he was so brilliant. And then Bob and I went on. We were all right because we, we were, you know, recognisable backup. The event was the police were on mm-hmm. at the end and we were all having the best time. Yeah. You know, and Sting was in full force. And we were all on stage. My little boy, Tom, who was still quite little, was on my shoulders. <laughs> with the, he doesn't remember this. With the police giving it. Full month, you know, the whole thing, having the best time. Then mm. there was, everybody's back to a hotel in Knightsbridge. 
and people were going into the swimming pool fully clothed. <laughs> and I just witnessed, I just stood there watching all this going on. And so did Sting. He wasn't interested in that side of it. And I met him a few times later on other things and said hello. And he was, mm. he was always very amiable. He's not anything like you would imagine a pop star, is he? I've met him a couple of times and he's, he's charming. He's never left the North, really. No. We did a police parody as the heebie-jeebies and uh, they got in touch with us and said, why didn't you ask us to do it? We would have come along and played that. You're kidding. And they meant it. Stuart Copeland was furious we hadn't used him to play the drums. That's too cool for school. That is just like the most amazing thing. Yeah, we didn't bother to ask. Why would you ask? Oh, we're doing a parody of you. Would you like to play on it? <laughs> what a strange world. You guys had the best time. Didn't you have the best time? We did have the best time, but you've not had a bad time, have you? Come on. You come out of Bristol and then you're straight into that series, Citizen Smith. Not a bad thing to do, is it? John Sullivan, though, quite early on. Very first thing he wrote. Amazing. It was a brilliant series. It's, of course, like a number of things. You can't understand why it's not all over the place still. Tony Millen, who played Tucker, Tony and I got together a few years ago. Tom turned up at my house with some beer. Uh, I'm not a drinker, but he brought his own, you know. Yeah. And the beer was made in a tooting brewery, and it had a picture of Wolfie Smith on the beer. <laughs> and so our conversation went... Well, he's going to sue. If the BBC don't sue, Bob will sue. And out of it, from somewhere, either, either Tom or Lisa, uh, about how old we were now, and they said senior citizen Smith. Oh, that's very good. So I went to Tony and I said, I've got three words to say to you. And he went, right, let's write it. And they just rejected it out of hand. Bob was in the West End. I went round and knocked on the door. I said, read that for me. Just read it and tell me what you think. He said, this is brilliant. I'd be all over this. Wow, yeah. yeah. What a great idea. It is a great idea. What a shame. So that was that, really. All right, we should try and finish this off. Have, have I done yet? Have I finished? What we do is we put in one thing that you want to get rid of. See if you can think of something for me. Well, I'm such a positive little thing. I try and think the best of people. You know what I mean? Yeah. But in the course of my day, I kind of try and run mantras through my head to try and be uh, tolerant. But I haven't got a specific thing, but I, it, I have got groups of things. The one that I cannot shift is if I'm driving, which happens rarely these days, and the car in front doesn't signal when it's turning right at the lights <laughs> and yeah. I have to go around it into the traffic and they haven't told me beforehand. They get to the junction and then they signal. And at those moments, I'm glad that we are not Texas and we're not <laughs> armed. Because I genuinely think there are moments I've been in confrontations with people when I think I would just wind the window down. <laughs> And shoot them. <laughs> it seems a good thing to throw away from your life. I try to on a regular basis. <laughs> well, I can take it for you, Mike, and I can bury it in the ground deep. Thank you. And the next time somebody will be in front of you and they'll suddenly signal right and you'll go, oh, you silly sausage. <laughs> It's not a word I use a lot, but I will attempt it. I'll try it through gritted teeth. Oh, you silly sausage. There you are. I'll try that. There we are. It works. I feel better already. Thank you. Thank you, Doctor. You're very welcome. Do I pay you in guineas? (laughs) Marvellous. How lovely to talk to you, Mike. It's really great to see you. It's a real treat. I don't know. Have we bitched about anybody we shouldn't bitch about? My boy's very skillful with the uh, with the old razor blade on the tape. Yeah, razor blade. I know all the modern stuff, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you have been listening to 
My Time Capsule, with me, Mike Fenton-Stevens, and my guest, Mike Grady. If you had fun, then do tell your friends, and if you haven't already subscribed, we'd be grateful if you would. Then we can tell you about each new episode as it's released, and you won't miss a single thing. Please do rate or even review the podcast if you get the chance. It really helps with the profile of the show and helps us to grow and therefore survive, which I hope is something you'd want. Thank you in advance. You can follow me and my time capsule on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook, where we're happy to chat and answer any questions you may have. We also love it when people suggest possible future guests for the podcast. That's already put us in touch with a number of guests we might never have thought of. The theme tune is by Pass the Peas Music and is available to download or stream on Spotify. This was a cast-off production for Acast, but it's available wherever you get your podcasts. The producer was John Fenton Stevens. Right, I'm off to watch Blue Peter. No, not the TV show, my neighbour. Yeah, I like to keep an eye on him. Oh, best to be safe. Well, I mean, we call him Blue Peter because, well, he's got terrible circulation. Bye. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.